Well, appreciate how faithful you've been this week. Open your Bibles up to John chapter 5. I want to look with you at verses uh, 37 through 38, which is really what we began looking at last night. I want to continue looking at that with you this evening. And again, uh, kind of bring us all up to speed with what uh, we've been looking at in John chapter 5 and uh, the message that's been taking place there. We've been dividing the chapter up in uh, sections to study it into three main sections. And if you have your Bibles open, you can see those very clearly. Uh, the first 15 verses is the story um, that uh, really is the foundation of chapter 5. Uh, Jesus has entered into the temple for the second time as we've been looking and discussing that. Uh, it's another feast of the Jews. We know that there were three main feasts that if you were a Jewish male living within a certain vicinity of the city, you had to attend. This was one of those feasts. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. So this is one of the feasts that by law, if you were a Jewish male, you required to come and to attend. We're not really sure which one it is. Probably wasn't the Passover. It was either the uh, Feast of Tabernacles or uh, Pentecost, uh, which was uh, another one of the feasts. The major feasts, but uh, nonetheless, this is one of those feasts. So Jesus comes up to Jerusalem, and of course, because it's the, one of the main feasts, the, the attendance in Jerusalem swells, and you have uh, just an enormous amount of people there in the temple, and uh, you find him over near the Sheep Gate area. And of course, right inside the Sheep Gate area, which uh, was the pool of Bethesda, and around this pool was a number of lame and blind, uh, crippled, disabled people, and they had gathered themselves there because of the tradition of this pool. There was this tradition that if, uh, uh, if you were lame or you had an illness, you could come to this pool. And the waters would become stirred and they believed that an angel of the Lord was descending into the pool. And if you could get into the pool quick enough before uh, the angel got out or before anybody else got in, the tradition was you'd be healed. So it attracted all these kinds of people. Jesus is here at this area of the pool. He singles out one guy there who's been there for 38 years, been around for a while, and uh, intersects his life after having a brief conversation with him. The Jews find out about this healing. They're absolutely irate uh, at, uh, at what this man is doing. He's carrying his mat, which, of course, breaks their traditions. Talked about that yesterday, that you, uh, Jesus didn't, didn't break the law, nor have anyone else break the law, because you can't break the law, you only prove the law. But he did break their traditions. He came against their traditions. In fact, I challenge you on this. Uh, if you look through the Gospel of John in particular, you will find that the majority of the miracles that he does comes against or breaks their traditions, which is why he's so irate at them. And he does this over and over again. In fact, back in John chapter 2, Jesus comes into the uh, uh, area of Galilee and Cana, and there's a wedding there. And there's this big issue. Uh, they're out of wine. And you know how it is at weddings. Never enough wine. And so uh, he, uh, he, he performs this awesome miracle and multiplies the wine. But he puts the wine and he could have told the servants. He gathered, these servants are gathered together for this issue. He could have told them, hey, go down to the kitchen and get some empty jars. Uh, they probably had things that they uh, had gathered to take care of the wine issue, empty wine vats, those kind of things. He could have said, fill those things up with water, but he didn't. He specifically pointed out ceremonial washing jars, which was the Jewish tradition for fulfilling the law of becoming ceremonially clean. And Jesus comes against that because he fills those things up with wine. So they're literally, he makes them so they're unusable. And it was a statement. This was a sign to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of that. That the way we are ceremonially clean today is not through the washing of water, but through the blood of Jesus. 
So he fulfilled that. And in fulfilling that law, in fulfilling, the, in fulfilling that promise of God, in fulfilling that whole deal, he broke their traditions. And of course, makes them irate. So all these miracles you're coming across in the Gospel of John really are not breaking the law. They're smashing their traditions, which we hate that just as they do. Okay. So they are absolutely irate at this guy for uh, carrying his mat because one of the traditions was is that you could not carry your mat on the Sabbath. That, that was breaking the Old Testament law that the Sabbath day was a day of rest. So they're, they're out to get this guy. And uh, of course, he sells out Jesus. And so in verse 16, you enter the second section of this chapter. And that's where Jesus begins to defend himself. They come up to him in verse 16 and says, so, uh, or it says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Now, again, that, that persecution is really strong language. It's not like they got on his case. It's not like they nagged him. It's not, you know, they just kind of, uh, you know, uh, you'll bit at him sharply, that kind of stuff. No, this is the same word that's used to express the persecution that Paul was breathing out against the early church. I mean, he was going from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, putting out the believers of the church, uh, or putting out the believers of the synagogue. And of course, he was there at the stoning of Stephen. And so this is really aggressive language. In fact, as you begin to go on, you see how aggressive the language is, because by the time you get down to verse 18, it tells us, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they, it, it's graduated. The more that Jesus begins to speak, the angrier that they get. And by the time you come down to the end of verse 18, uh, which they, they're probably so few men, they don't even say anything. The rest, well, they don't the rest of the chapter. It's all in red letters. So they're irate. Jesus dominates the conversation, but they're wanting to kill him. So all the way down through verse 30, Jesus is giving a testimony as to what, uh, why he's doing what he's doing, which is phenomenal, which is what, again, uh, I want my testimony to be. And it, it culminates in verse 30, which is the end of the testimony. And he says, by myself, I can do nothing. Literally, I cannot do one thing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgments, uh, my judgments are just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So he gives this testimony of this tight, intimate relationship with God. And actually, especially by the end, of, and, and his whole testimony says one thing, that there's a whole new covenant that's taking place. Okay, There's a whole new covenant that's taking place, and we don't have time to go into this, but it's kind of hidden in verse 30. Uh, he says, my judgments are just. That word just in the original translation, in fact, you might even have it in your translations, is the word right or righteous. It's where you get the word righteousness. There was an old covenant standard of righteousness and there was a new covenant standard of righteousness. The old covenant standard of righteousness was not holiness because you couldn't be holy, okay? Couldn't be holy. The old covenant standard of righteousness was demonstrated by Zechariah and Elizabeth at the beginning of chapter of Luke where it says they were righteous and blameless in the sight of God and observing all the commands that God had given them in the law. Okay, that was the standard of righteousness, doing all the things that God called you to do in the Old Testament. But when you come into the New Covenant, that's not the standard for righteousness anymore. That's not the standard for right living anymore. The standard for right living is holiness. So in the New Covenant, you could be doing all the things you did in the Old Covenant and not be right living in the New Covenant. Because the New Covenant is not founded on keeping all the rules. The, uh, the New Covenant righteousness is founded on holiness, literally living holy, which is something you and I can't do. God literally has to move inside of us and, and cause us enabling holiness out, uh, coming out of us that we cannot do ourselves. Let me say that better than this. Okay? Let me say it a little better now. That the New Covenant 
See, I cannot produce holiness. So God moves in the inner confines of my body and literally is holiness through me. He is my holiness, which is the testimony of what Jesus has been talking about all along. That God has moved on and what they are seeing is literally not what he wants to do, but what his father wants to do. He is a picture of the father. This is his testimony. Now, in this type of a formal setting and the charges are so strict, uh, and of course uh, they're, they're wanting to kill him, which he's following right along the, the path that's set in Deuteronomy chapter 19 that uh, he has to call witnesses um, to, to kind of confirm what he's saying. And uh, so verses 31 through uh, 47, you have these other witnesses that are being provided by Jesus. He's calling along other witnesses who are saying the same thing that he's been saying. Now, here's the kicker. Here's the neat part about this is that all the witnesses that he gathers he doesn't gather them right now. It's he, in fact, he is the last one who is witnessing to this. That literally all of these testimonies in verses 31 through the end of the chapter have already taken place. They're all in the past tense. So, see, they shouldn't be surprised at this. And Jesus looks at them and says, listen, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. He says that in verse 31. He says, hey, there is another who testifies about me, and he begins with John, then he goes to his works, then he goes to the Father, then he goes to Scriptures, then he goes to Moses, and he just lames them off one after another. And he says, listen, these guys testified about me. See, this shouldn't be new news to you, that God has been talking about this all along. And what we're wanting to look at, uh, again, in this, uh, in this setting this evening, is we want to look at the Father's testimony. And the Father's testimony is recorded in verses 37 and 38. And uh, there are really, uh, the testimony of the Father is that all that God has been saying, all that God has been doing and bringing about in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, in that Old Testament hour, okay, the time of the prophets and, and before Christ, and that we have a record of that in the Old Testament, God has been speaking about this. And it makes it plain in verses 37 and 38 that they have rejected this testimony in three ways. Verse 37 says, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. But you have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. Three things. Never heard his voice, never seen his form, and his word doesn't dwell in you. And I know this, he says, for you do not believe the one he has sent. You don't believe me. So it's absolutely clear, you understand. It's absolutely clear that you, do, uh, that you have never heard his voice. You've never seen his uh, form, nor does his word dwell in you. So this is what we want to look at tonight. And uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us out with this. Father, we love you this evening. We thank you for the truth of your word and what you're wanting to do this evening and what you're wanting to bring about in this service. Could it be that when we open up the pages of your word, that we can see you. It's absolutely evident that we can hear you, that we can hear your voice, that somehow when we read the words of this book, it's not just dead words, it's not just words that were written, it's not just a record uh, of, a, of, the, uh, of the accounts of events that took place in the past, similar to our history books. No, the author of this book was not the prophets. The author of this book is alive and is still revealing himself as we read it. You have risen from the grave, Jesus, and as we read your word, your Holy Spirit is speaking to us, revealing us the true deep meanings behind it. That is the desire of our hearts tonight. But somehow, when we open up the pages of this book, we can see you. Give us insight into your word, and of course, we'll give you all the praise. Father, we ask these things in the name of your Son, 
Christ Jesus. Amen. He begins in verse 37, kind of want to just uh, run through this, uh, the beginning part of this, before we pick up with the uh, second aspect of their rejection of the testimony. We need to really begin to look at verse 37 again, and uh, this will be a little bit of a recap for us. It says, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. Again, talked about this last night, that uh, he is drawing attention to the fact, uh, well, he's actually drawing his attention to two things. The first thing that he's drawing uh, his attention to is that the Father himself has testified concerning me. And he uses emphasis uh, when he says this. It's emphatic statement. And again, in our, in our English translations, uh, uh, of the Bible and in the English we, and when we write we have exclamation points which is how we uh, emphasize things when we, when we say things and you know I don't know how your wives and your husbands uh, are and your relationships but uh, when my wife leaves me a note about stuff she usually puts a lot of exclamation points behind those kinds of notes to add emphasis to those kinds of things yeah. Maybe your wife doesn't do that, but mine does. And because uh, I need that kind of emphasis, okay? So Jesus is placing that kind of emphasis here. And it's not just the Father has testified. It's the Father himself has testified concerning me, okay? And he also adds emphasis, and we didn't look at this last night, but just mentioning it in passing, passing it says, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. Uh, it says, the Father who sent me. Here's the neat part of this is that, that there's a couple different words for sending in the New Testament. Okay? Uh, there's the Greek word apostello, which is where we get our word apostle. And then there's another Greek word, which is the Greek word pimpo, which is a different type of Greek word. Now, apostello means one who is sent with great authority, and there's purpose in that, and, and it's a very, it's a, Jesus is apostelloed at times. But the word that... that that John keeps using or that Jesus keeps using in this, in this passage and talking to leadership of Israel is not apostello, it's the Greek word pimpo. And the Greek word pimpo literally in a kind of a, uh, well, it would be a negative connotation, carries with it the same idea of the, our English word pimp. Kind of even sounds like it, pimpo. And it carries with it the idea of a, of a, of a, of a watching over the one you have sent. For instance, um, uh, first time I ever shared this, the study on this word was at a retirement community in uh, Arizona. Uh, they have retirement communities there. And, and uh, it was Sun City Church of the Nazarene, and they had us out for a revival, and, and about 350 people there on Sunday morning. And uh, I talked about the Greek word pimpo. And I said, when I say pimpo, what's the first thing you think of? <laughs> Everybody's real quiet. A little old lady on the left told me. She says out loud, in a real loud voice, she says, that, well, it sounds like pimp. <laughs> of course, everybody starts laughing. But that's kind of the similar word because the idea of the pimp is that he sends out these prostitutes, okay? And uh, the pimp solicits customers for a prostitute. It's a negative connotation. But see, there's, there's, a, there's an authority over the prostitute that the pimp has. See, the prostitute doesn't go very far. The, the pimp is always there watching over her. There's an amount of control, all of that kind of stuff. Now, that's an extreme negative uh, perspective on this. But in the Greek word pimpo, it's the same idea. See, in the Greek word pimpo, it's this one who has great authority has sent someone for a task. In this case, it would be the father sending the son. But when the father sends the son, he does not send the son by himself. The Greek word pimpo implies that as soon as the father sends the son, he comes down and accompanies the one that he has sent. 
So when Jesus talks about the Father has pimpoed me, literally that means the Father himself is right there with him as he is speaking. So Jesus comes into this courtroom setting, is talking to them face to face, and he says, by the way, the Father himself, who's standing here right beside me, has himself testified about me. The Father who sent me, which means he's right here with me in this setting, hey, you don't know who he is, you've never heard his voice, you've never seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. He has sent me, he has been testifying about me. So these are the two emphasis statements that he says at the very beginning, which is really strong. It's really emphatic. He's making a point uh, about this. You don't know my father. He has sent me. He's here with me. And he's been testifying about me. And of course, we understand that the idea of, of the father testifying is out of the Old Testament, that he's been speaking through the prophets, that the prophets themselves didn't come and, and give their own opinion. They didn't come and, and, uh, uh, and they heard from God and they wanted to come and tell us about what they heard. The idea about the prophet was, is that when a prophet come and spoke to the people of God, it was not his words, but it was the very words of God, which was crucial. See, I, we did a study uh, about, well... Six years ago, Amos, about six years ago, probably, about six years ago, I can't remember now, we did a study through the book of Amos. And when Amos comes up from Tekoa, which is from the south, and he comes up to, uh, to Israel, he was from Judea and Tekoa, and he's prophesying to Israel. And when Amos comes up and he stands in the midst of the people and he says, thus saith the Lord, I mean, everybody stops and listens Uh, also in the fact that he compares God to this angry, roaring lion who's about to pounce on Israel. Now, you understand if a guy just comes up and he says, listen, God's really upset. See, if you just take that as his opinion, well, hey, everybody's got an opinion. But if this man comes up and says, listen, this is the word of the Lord, and out of his mouth begins to come judgment and condemnation, and this roaring lion is about to devour the people of Israel, you understand it just, it, it put fear in the hearts of the people. So when a prophet came, it wasn't just his opinion, it wasn't just his words, he was coming and the very words he was saying were the words of God himself. So when Jesus says, hey, the Father himself has testified concerning me, that's in the past, he's talking about the Father speaking in the past through the prophets, the people of Israel, about uh, about what he has been saying. So the same thing Jesus has testified about in verses 16 through 30 is the same thing the Father has been talking about in an entire Old Testament hour which is powerful, and which is not hard to believe because there were 333 prophecies about Jesus before he ever came. We knew all kinds of things about Jesus. We knew he was going to be born out of uh, of a virgin. We knew that he was going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. We knew he was going to be born in the kingly line of David. We knew that uh, we knew all those kinds of details about his life. Why? Because God had been talking about him before he had ever come. And the message, and this is what's most powerful, you see the message that Jesus had. See, it should not have been a surprise to them. And maybe I shouldn't be surprised at this, but I'm telling you the truth. We have been to revivals. And it's not that I make up stuff. (laughs) I just come inventing things to talk about. I'd invent stuff about, you know, paying lots of money to the evangelist and, you know, that kind of stuff. But... See, I didn't come inventing this. We just break open the scriptures and share this. And we have senior adults saying, I've never heard that before. See, that is absolutely shocking to me. <laughs> Where have you been? What, what have you been listening to? What church have you been going to? See, this is, not, this is no new thing. And Jesus just flabbergasted, which is a great word. See, Jesus just flabbergasted, looks at the leaders of Israel. And he says, listen, the Father himself has been talking about this. The Father himself has been testifying about me. And we're not going to get to this this week. But if you just follow down a couple verses to verse 39, 
He says, you diligently study the scriptures. Your nose has been in this book. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. They speak to me. See, somehow when you come into the pages of this book, it says one thing and that's Jesus. See, that's what this book talks about. Whether you come from the Old Covenant perspective or whether you come from the New Covenant perspective, Old Testament, New Testament, it all speaks about Jesus. So God had been testing, uh, testifying the same thing that Jesus has been talking about and living right before the leaders of Israel. God himself was talking about that in the Old Testament. And we've been giving examples of that this week. You have Ezekiel, which stands before the people of God and says, listen, a time is coming. And this is, again, God speaking to his people. A time is coming when I'm going to take my spirit, I'm going to place it inside of you, and you're not going to be able to help but to be the way you are. And that, of course how he says it, is you're not going to be able to help but to obey my commands and keep my laws. And uh, I don't know how you picture that in your mind. But see, I don't have to get up in the morning and say, man, oh, I almost forgot to get hungry. Yep, got to have breakfast, got to get hungry. Okay, Or uh, it doesn't come around 11 o'clock at night or 1030 for some of us. And uh, we don't say, oh, hold up, I got to get tired because I get sleep and we turn on this button to get tired. See, that's just a natural product of who we are as human beings. Wouldn't it be neat just if God wanted to do such a work in you where Christianity was no longer defined by our disciplines, by our efforts, by those kinds of things. But Christianity was just, it was so much a part of who we were, it just came out naturally. And someone comes up to you and says, you know (laughs) Why did you treat that person that way? You'd say, I just can't help myself. I don't know, man. I just have to love on him, man. I have to hug him, okay? I have to treat him that way. I just, I'm drawn from, I'm just driven from the inside. See, the same things that are going on inside of God are the same things. I just can't help myself. See, that's the message that Jesus comes to the people of Israel and to this group right here, the leaders of Israel. And he says, listen, this message shouldn't surprise you because, hey, listen, my father's been talking about this from the very beginning. And he's saying this with emphasis, with, you know, emphatic. In fact, he's not saying this like God's out there. Hey, God is standing in the courtroom with them, okay? The father who sent him, who's standing right there as Jesus is speaking and saying, listen, you know, in fact, by the time you get to John chapter 10, he begins to say stuff like, the words that you're hearing are not my own. They come from the one who sent me. So it's literally that the words are coming right into, right into Jesus' ear and out his mouth right to them. So this is the same message that God has been saying all along. And of course, they have rejected this. Now, we looked at uh, yesterday of how they rejected or, or, or they're rejecting in terms of not hearing his voice. Um, that just, which is, again, see, this really was stretching for me. Because it's understandable that when the people of Israel were, were, were about their business, okay, and Amos comes and says, Thus saith the Lord, someone could look over and say, Oh, I hear his voice. Very audible. Which that's, you understand, that's, that's the literal word. I tried to look at this in, in, in figurative language, that maybe John was being figurative, that you, know, you, can, you can hear his voice in kind of a, uh, you know, it's a kind of a metaphorical language, you know, we can hear his voice. But you know, it's, it's, it's literal. That somehow, when you come into the page of this scripture, just as they heard him in the past, you can hear him today. Which is, that's overwhelming. That somehow I can hear him speak just as David. Which, see, my perspective was, is I used to be jealous of those in the Bible. See, I wish I could hurt him the way David can. You can. See, that's the dynamic of the scriptures. Well, I wish I could have, 
I wish I could have heard Jesus speak like the disciples did. You can, see? You can hear his voice, man. He can speak to you, which revolutionizes your devotional life. Your devotional life is not, dis, is not apart from him or di- disattached from him. See, your devotional life is when you read the pages of this book, he's whispering in your ear, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. See, it's that kind of a deal. And they, they've never heard him, which doesn't mean they've never heard him. It means they never, they never heeded it. They, they never took it. See, they never, they never grabbed a hold of that. And Jesus says that's, that's so because they don't belong to God, which is aggressive. See, if you, <laughs> you can come to church every Sunday and belong to the enemy. And there's no middle ground on this. You either belong to God or you belong to the enemy. And if you come into the pages of this book and he's speaking to you about your life and he says, hey, that's not there and you choose not to listen, what you're saying in essence is, hey, I choose to be like the enemy in this area of my life. Leave me alone. What other conclusion can you come to? Which, again, is really aggressive. So if you don't want to submit to the scriptures, hey, we'll just call you Satan. Because that's what Jesus does. Your father's the devil, which is, man, talk about aggressive. That's what he says. Now, the next part is really good. This is what he says. Um, And the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Now, this is equally really odd language. See, Jesus says stuff here. And I struggle with this. Jesus really said stuff here that did not make sense. You've never seen his form. There are, it's really unclear, some of John's language. There are five different Greek words for seen or saw, okay, that kind of thing, that are used uh, in the book of John. Five different ones. And they all have a little bit of different meaning. This one right here literally carries with the idea of a spectator. That you're just sitting there looking. Okay? That you're just watching something. It's not really, it has to do with perceiving Uh, but it's perceiving through something physical that you're seeing. And the idea of seeing his form, it's not, okay, you know uh, where uh, Paul talks to Timothy and he says in the last days there will be people who have a form of godliness? That's not even that word. The word form there literally means physical form. So it's not only, God has, he's talking about you've never seen his physical form and not perceiving his physical form, literally fixing your eyes on a physical form and perceiving the truth in that. So it's all physical stuff, which doesn't make any sense because God doesn't have a physical form, which is really ridiculous because just, and I see I struggled over this, because just a chapter before Jesus is talking in, in chapter four with this Samaritan woman. And he plain flat tells her, see, she's talking about, hey, we go up to Mount uh, Gerizim, I think is where their worship place was, where they would go and worship the Samaritans. They would, they would worship. Hey, we go to our mountain to worship. You Jews go to your, your mountain to worship there in Jerusalem. Hey, we have our place to worship. You have your place. To, we have our scriptures. You have your scriptures. And Jesus says, listen, take all of those physical circumstances and dump them because, and this is what he says, Verse 24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, it's not a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. God is spirit. Okay. God is a spiritual being. God does not have a body. God does not have a body. God is a spiritual being. You cannot see him. And if you're going to worship him, you must worship in spirit and truth, which tells us, see, you can come to church physically on Sunday and yet somehow never have come to church on Sunday. You can come to church and physically worship and never have worshipped. 
You ever been singing on Sunday morning, singing the song, and then realize that you're really thinking about, oh, man, I left the iron on. <laughs> and you get all the way to like the third stanza or something, and then, oh, oh yeah, that's right, I'm singing. And see, well, and you, can, you can physically come in and tithe and never tithe. Because tithe is not a physical thing. Tithe is a spiritual act of worship to him. See, it's, 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 it's off the physical level. It's into the spirit. Now, it's not just John who talks about this. There's a number of places. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Colossians. Paul says, and he, he's got this whole deal about describing uh, Jesus coming. And he says at the beginning of verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Can't see him. <laughs> he's spirit. Doesn't have a body. He's the invisible God, which mimics, uh, no, mimics. it sounds like or it's similar to the language at the very beginning of the book of Genesis in chapter 2. Uh, I think it's chapter 2 where God is hovering. His spirit is hovering over the, the, the waters of the earth type of thing. See, he's not body. He's spirit. Uh, doesn't only say it there in Colossians. He also says it in First um, Timothy uh, 1.17. This is what he says. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So God is spirit, doesn't have a body. And that excited you enough. Let me give you one more. And this is, this is this, and they had this concept in the Old Testament as well. And I had three picked out in the Old Testament, but I won't read them at this time. Uh, he's talking about Moses and, of course, his relationship with God. And it says, by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. So now here's the, here's the dilemma we're in. Jesus is talking. It's very plain. They all understand this, that God is absolutely invisible. He is spirit. You can't lay your hand on him. He always has a physical mediator when he's speaking to the people of Israel. Always. He comes, they come in prophets. There's this angel of the Lord guy who's always popping in and out, talking to people. You find him in a fiery bush at one point. He's scaring donkeys and, you know, and the guy's beating his donkey. <laughs> Different King James language there. But um, see, all of that kind of stuff is taking place. And, and see, God always has this mediator to speak to people okay because god is invisible he's spirit and then you come into john chapter 5 and jesus says well you've never seen him and i want to say no kid man you can't see him. he's invisible but you understand i'm struggling with this he's talking about a physical form now get this now try this on for size when he's talking about a physical form you can have a physical form with that that is apart from yourself that makes sense okay Paul talks about it all at the beginning of Romans. His invisible qualities are displayed all over. So somehow you can begin to see him and, and get pictures of him. And, and the physical representations that he gives and the physical pictures that he gives, you can see his form. You understand? You can see him. The idea is, is I have a form. Okay? You can see that up here. Kind of tall, lanky, skinny. Okay? I'm white. I'm, I have a form. But then that's me. Intimately associated with me, you can't you know, remove that. But when, it, when it's winter out, I can go out and I can lay on the ground, put my form in the snow. And I can stand up and I can walk over there and someone comes out and they look over there and say, what's that? And say, oh, that's Jeremiah's form. Now that's not Jeremiah and you can, and it will no longer be there, but that's Jeremiah's form. In other words, it is the imprint, it is the impression, it is, you might want might even call it the style, it is the physical form. If God had a form, this is what it looks like. This is the form of who he is. It's kind of what he's trying to say here. And it is a physical representation of God to the people, which God has always given this in the past. Really got into this kind of idea. Um, For instance... The prophets, again, God's speaking to the prophets about his physical form. He says, you could have seen him. 
Somehow when you come into the scriptures, God revealed himself physically to the people of Israel. When you come into the scriptures, somehow you can see his form. Uh, the prophets, Ezekiel. Ezekiel was different than all the other prophets in really interesting ways. He acted out. He acted out all of his, all of his, uh, all of his prophecies. You know, like he would build uh, when, when uh, the, I uh, forget what country was going to come and, 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 and lay siege to Israel. He came and he built this little city type of thing and he's throwing rocks at it and that kind of thing. And it was a prophecy, a physical prophecy that they could see that was going to take place to them. Uh, all kinds of stuff. He talked about the defilement of Israel and he, he went out and he got this food and he set it over there and then he went out and he got these, you know, cow patties, realize <laughs> what they were, and he brought them in and he built this fire. Do you remember the story? He built this fire and he cooked his food on it and ate it and he was defiled, which was a picture of Israel. Yeah, poor Ezekiel. <laughs> I'd rather have been Amos. <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it was a physical representation. It was a physical picture. God did this all the time. One of my favorites is uh, study this in college when I studied Amos out of the Minor Prophets was Hosea. And it is the physical form. It is, it is what God's heart looks like in the physical. It is, it is, he's not, he doesn't have a body, but he has a form, and that's portrayed the most perfectly in the book of Hosea. You have Hosea, and God calls him to preach. Okay? This is phenomenal. God calls him to go to the people of Israel. Okay? God, I got a message I want you to give. And Hosea says, well, I'm ready to go. God says, you're not ready. Here's what I want to do. I want you to go out and I want you to find a prostitute and I want you to marry her. Now, at first you get the picture that Hosea says, okay, don't understand this, but I'll do it. And you have the picture that he goes out, he just grabs one of these prostitutes, marries her, brings her home, says, okay, did this and done that. But when you begin to read the story, you see it was a little bit different than that. They spent quote-unquote, many days together. They had a life together. They had two children together. There was a family life. There was quarrels. There was celebration of birthdays. See, there was helping raising the... She, he probably helped his wife through morning sickness and afternoon sickness and that kind of thing. See, I, you know, he probably did that kind of thing. And uh, see, there, there was family relationship that was taking, taking place there. And he has this intimate relationship. And all, all throughout this story through the book of uh, Hosea, in the midst of this man's life that's spread about, all by the commands of God, you have these inserted you know, uh, rebukes to Israel and, and hope given to Israel. All these little stories and these quotations of God saying to Israel specific things that apt are a picture of of the life of Hosea and his family. So Hosea goes out, marries this prostitute. He probably courts her. I mean, he builds a relationship with her, you know. Uh, he marries her, had a honeymoon type of thing, took her home, brought her into his house, had a couple kids, named those kids, had intimate relationship. One day Hosea wakes up, and guess where Gomer's gone to? Back to the people of Israel. And Hosea, now again, I, I, I've always just really... Uh, taken the scriptures <clears throat> literally and brought them into my world and see when Jesus see when Jesus comes and, 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 and he heals a blind man in the temple say when, when Jesus comes and he heals this guy in our passage in the temple you understand you, you know what that would have looked like in his day I mean you take that out of the fairy tale land we put the scripture and bring that into concrete everyday type of stuff change your life this is concrete, everyday stuff. Hosea wakes up in the morning. Gomer's not there. She goes out, thinks she's cooking breakfast, and, and she's gone. Kids are getting up. They're late for school. They're crying. Where's mommy? She doesn't come home. Can you imagine the pain he's going through? 
she is cheating on him with other, with other men. I mean, the pain, the anger, all those things. He wants to probably kill her. <laughs> I mean, he's just absolutely irate. All the emotions you and I would be feeling, he is feeling. All the questions the kids are having that are asking him or all the questions your kids would ask, uh, ask you if your wife left. See, the, these are the, this is the concrete stuff that takes place. And of course, Hosea is crying out to God. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get her. And he searches through the streets for Gomer. And he finds her, and she has been used and abused. She's not worth anything anymore. In fact, she is being sold as a slave on the auction block. And he buys her back, takes her back into his home, not as a servant, not that kind of deal, restores her. It's phenomenal. He restores her to the level of his wife, absolute forgiveness, absolute acceptance, and he has the same relationship with her as he did with the beginning, and he loves her. And God says, that's the love that I have for Israel. And it was this physical picture of the form of God that was given to the people of Israel. See, this over and over and over, you have the love of God to his people. And I had, man, there's, there's so many stories like that in the Old Testament of the love that God has for his people and the depths and, and the longing, the long suffering of who he is. And you have this, this physical picture that is living before them. Can you imagine the people talking? Yeah, the prophet. We thought he was a prophet. He's got family problems. You know, Hosea never was a very good dad. Who knows what kind of problems he had in his relationship. It was a very concrete, physical. They could relate to it. God's not physical. God doesn't have him. You know, he's not married. He doesn't have, you know, those, those kinds of things going on in terms of, you know, God who he is. But his form is demonstrated in a very physical way. They could walk up. They could slap Hosea on the back. They could see the kids. They cried with him. They prayed with him. They watched the kids when he went with the work, all that kind of stuff. In physical form, God was displayed to the people of Israel. And they could physically see that with their own eyes and perceive. There's perception in that. They can see God physically through that. That's the idea. And somehow, now get this, this is powerful. Somehow, when you come into the scriptures and you're not just reading stories on a page, you are, God, you are being presented before your very eyes the form of God and what He looks like in a husband's body. What He looks like in a wife's body. What He looks like like a parent. What He looks like as a church member. What He looks like as, a, as an enemy. What He looks like as a neighbor. What He looks like as a Samaritan who's riding on a donkey. On the other side of the street, you have a man bleeding. You know what God looks like in that physical... See, he, Jesus talked like that all the time. Now, what Jesus says is you've never, see, you've never seen him. You've never seen that. Now again, he's not talking about you've never physically seen that because, hey, you're without excuse, he says. Seen is not like they haven't physically seen. Seen, again, carries with it, if you could get this. Seen is the idea of rejection. They just absolutely refuse that. They absolutely refuse that demonstration time after time after time. Now, again, you don't have to look far for this because you go just... In chapter 8, he says you're the children of the devil and you think that's bad. Immediately after that, Jesus heals a man who's been born blind in in chapter 9. And, of course, the man is just absolutely amazed at their ignorance. And he's saying, you know, listen to some of the things this guy says. A second time, this is the second time. This is the first time and he says, hey, listen, I don't know who he is, but he opened my eyes. Chapter 9, verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been healed after they talked to, her, uh, talked to his uh, parents. He says, give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. Now I see. 
Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Listen to what the guy says. I've told you already, and you did not listen. Hear that hearing deal? They reject it. Go down to verse 28. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And listen to what the guy says. Just absolutely simple. This is what he says in verse 30. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened the eye, he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. The idea of threw him out is literally threw him out of the synagogue. You were no longer able to be saved. You're literally out of that whole deal. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he says, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus says, you, are, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And this is what Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were, heard, uh, who were with him heard him say, and, uh, say this and asked, What are we blind to? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So see, they can physically see, but in their rejection of Jesus Christ, it's absolutely evident that they had no idea who God was and never seen his form at all. Because God's form is always demonstrated in pour your life out. God's form is always de- uh, demonstrated in reaching out to those who cannot help themselves. I mean, it's the absolute unconditional forgiveness love of a God whose who's burning passion desire has to have intimate with us. And again, in our own passage in John chapter 5, which we're going to look at um, Tomorrow morning, in verses 1 through 15, you have the picture of Jesus who comes into the temple, intersects the man, a, a life of a man who's been there for 38 years. He wants nothing from him, doesn't want to use him for his purpose. This guy is not an object, and he in, intersects his life. And they never, ever seen him. Wouldn't it be terrible? To be like the leadership of Israel. And Jesus show up to our church on Sunday morning and never seen. I mean, being able to see all the traditions and and never seen. Again, comes back to sheep and goats language we've been talking about. When did we see you? When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And see, the concept is, the idea is, is that when you come and hear me on this, when you come into the scriptures, you can't miss his form. What does he look like? God always presents himself as the servant who's meeting the needs of Israel. Jesus, we love you this evening. Don't let me miss you in the scriptures. You have made yourself absolutely plain. That somehow, just as your disciples, just as your disciples saw you, we can see you.
Open our eyes, Father, to the truth of your word. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.